Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. Welcome to episode 43 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So this week I'm going to be doing part one of a two-parter with my old friend and colleague Duncan Johnson. Duncan uh, served 30 years in the Met Police and he spent a great deal of his career as a close protection officer. Uh, no one, I suppose, in Hollywood as a bodyguard, but uh, we don't like to use that term because it's a bit of a, a nonsense expression, as Don Duncan will explain to you why. Um, really interesting, and part of the reason why I do this podcast is to sort of help people understand the breadth of things that go on in the wider police family. And uh, yeah, so many people just think it's about uniform cops kind of driving about, responding to 999 calls or calls for service um it's not there's a lot of different things that go on in the organization and it's not uncommon for someone to dip in and out of different roles through a long career so really looking forward to uh hearing all about that from duncan who you'll find i referred to him as a fuckwit and before (laughs) before the interview um I, i i wondered whether i should cut that out but i thought no um, half the joy of podcasts, I think, is the fact that it is unfiltered, that it's real, and uh, there's an honest dialogue between two people, which is such a rare thing in this day and age. Duncan's ever such a good friend. I've known him for a long, long time, and uh, I've been called a lot worse than fuckwit. So um, there you go. Before we get into the interview with Duncan, though, there was just a couple of things I just wanted to talk about um, today. So the first thing um, was an article which caused quite a lot of a kerfuffle on police social media. An article in, I know it's the Daily Mail, it's such a, it's such a pain in the arse, aren't they? Um, but this is by Peter Hitchens, who, uh, for anybody who doesn't know who Peter Hitchens is, he's a Sort of, uh, him and his brother Christopher Hitchens were both journalists, both very outspoken. Christopher died a few years ago. Um, he was a, a very um, outspoken atheist, I suppose. That was one of the things he was well known for. And uh, and Peter is a 
quite a well known for being a Christian, um, but he's very outspoken and quite disagreeable. Um, and he writes for various publications. And he wrote an article on the 4th of June in Daily Mail, and it's called Let's Build a New Police Force That Actually Does the Job We Want It to Do. Um, and I'll, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs just to kind of give you a flavour of what he's saying. He starts off by saying, This country is in many ways like a great and ancient oak tree, which appears majestic from the outside, but which is hollow and crumbling within. There are many examples of this, from the armed forces and the great universities to the political parties, the Church of England and the courts of law. But perhaps the most striking instance of decay is the police force, as it is now not supposed to be called. It is actually the case that it was once uniquely good in the world, not perfect or saintly, but restrained, fair, effective, and above all, on the side of goodness. But now it is not. And he talks about uh, it being a failed, bloated, arrogant bureaucracy. So this caused you know, quite a lot of reaction on police social media with a lot of people feeling... So I think the, the comments I was reading kind of fell into two separate camps, really. Um, everybody kind of agreed with what he was saying. I think most cops now, unless they are just completely deluded um, agree that the job's fucked isn't it um, uh, for all the reasons that I describe in my book and in this podcast but there were a lot of things that that uh, Peter Hitchens said in his article that were just rather ridiculous really um, and he sort of looks back through very sort of romantic rose tinted spectacles at a uh, at a police force that I don't think probably ever actually existed and he doesn't seem to understand the complexity of modern life um, the fact that whether we like it or not um, police officers do have to pick up the pieces of uh, many other parts of public life that aren't working particularly things like mental health um, and they do end up spending an awful lot of time doing things that have got nothing to do with crime anymore. So, But I think his basic point was that the police is broken is, is one that we're now starting to hear kind of more and more. So, um, yeah, well, we shall see, won't we? Um, so the other thing I thought was just worth touching on was the... Um, announcement by the Information Commissioner's Office, or rather John Edwards, who is the Information Commissioner, that there is now um, a sense that the police are massively overstepping the mark when it comes to hoovering up all sorts of data relating to victims of rape and serious sexual assaults. Um, they are saying that it's intrusive, uh, I 100% agree, and it's disproportionate and it needs to change. Um, and just to kind of help you understand how that has come about, 
there was a time not that long ago when if a victim of rape said that they'd been raped, they would be... Um, uh, an investigation. Obviously, there was the usual things around sort of medical examinations and seizing of forensic evidence and all of that stuff. Um, but we would not have seized their mobile phone and computer or whatever and started downloading it. And this is the point to try and find information that undermined their account. Um, however, that has now become uh, pretty much a standard part of not just investigations into serious sexual offences, but into all sorts of other offences where um, the police are looking at the victim as potentially someone who is telling lies. And the reason they do that is because there was a number of high-profile cases. In fact, I don't even think there was that many. I think there was only one or two. Um, now, I, I'm probably going to absolutely murder the facts here, but I think it was about five or six years ago there, were, uh, there was a couple of cases that became very high-profile where it had been shown at court by the defence that the police had not disclosed to them during the course of the investigation that there was material on a victim's phone that would have undermined her case and supported the case of the defendant, their client. And that caused a huge uh, kerfuffle, as you can imagine. It went to the Court of Appeal. And because of that, there then became uh, it became necessary or expected that the police when investigating these sorts of offenses would ask for uh, the victim to sign a form at the start of the investigation that gave them permission to examine the victim's mobile device uh, usually their phone which generally involved taking the phone off them for very considerable periods of time because of the backlogs and forensic, digital forensics units, which we all said at the time, this is going to absolutely, this is going to cause a huge problem because victims do, are not going to be happy about you going on basically a fishing trip, uh, looking through their phones, and, and they don't want to surrender their devices. And, and sure enough... Um, this is now kind of one of the factors that has resulted in incredibly low um, prosecution rates for rape in England and Wales. And one of the statistics uh, that is from the Home Office that illustrates this point really well is that in 2016, 42% of rape victims withdrew their cooperation from the investigation. Now, that could be for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but in 2020, so four years later, that number had risen to nearly 60%. So 60% of victims um, withdrawing their cooperation. And that was at around the same time 
that this new expectation that they hand over their mobile phones to have them examined uh, came in. So I'm really pleased that the Information Commissioner has um, has made this announcement, and he's and he's basically saying that um, this is such a gross invasion of privacy for victims. It's it's f- completely flies in the face of of all sorts of kind of rules around GDPR and uh, information uh, security and privacy, and and not only that, but you're also treating your victim as if they are they've done something wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that from time to time, in a very very small number of cases, victims do tell lies. They do. I've seen it many times. But generally speaking, they don't. And and that's all part and parcel, I think, of an investigation to get to the bottom of what exactly has happened. And most of the time, the only reason that the police do this is because they know that if they don't, the defence will then cry foul and, uh, and then claim, usually, which is just a um, completely spurious argument, they will claim that the police are withholding relevant evidence when when actually, you know, 99.9 times out of 100, they're not. Um, so it just sort of got me thinking about what the solution is to all of this, really. Um, I do think that there's something there about saying um, to the CPS, the Crime Prosecution Service, and the defence um, that... If if the defence are going to make this argument that they need to see everything on a victim's phone in order to negate that suggestion that they're telling lies, then my view would be if you've got proof or if you've got evidence yourselves that the victim is telling lies. In other words, for example, if the suspect who has been arrested says to his or her uh, solicitor, um, I know that this person's telling lies because look, on my phone, I've got text messages and WhatsApp messages or whatever um, contradicting what she's saying or what the victim is saying. Then I would say, okay, then um, submit your phone for forensic, put the onus on the defendant to submit his phone in order to retrieve uh, those messages. You then put that, you then go back to your, witness, your victim and you say, right, we've, we've, we've retrieved these messages from uh, the phone of the person who you said raped you, um, you know, which, which does tend to undermine what you're saying. So, you know, what have you got to say about that? And it was really interesting because I... Um, you know, commented quite a lot about this on LinkedIn and uh, got some really interesting responses from very experienced investigators and one of whom I won't embarrass by naming him, um, but he's a uh, digital media investigator and uh, and he said, we have to think so far out of the box now when we're doing these jobs that we're not even in the same room. It's a case of layering multiple data sets, behaviours, sources, and then building a picture. And what does that picture look like against the information we know to be true? And then we run it again alongside the allegation and it gets more 
complex every day. And he went on to say, it creates so many legal arguments that the victims appear to be the last ones to be considered. So that's someone who is a really experienced digital uh, media investigator currently serving in the police. Um, and, and the point he makes there, I think, is really interesting that um, the facts of the matter just get lost in this um, backwards and forwards argument between the defence who are just trying to twist and turn and uh, throw the try and get the case binned, basically, um, and the poor old victim who's been completely forgotten about in all of this, and the investigators who are spending months and months and months trying to make sense of uh, gigabytes of data from all sorts of, of um, electronic devices. So, yeah, God almighty, it's a right bloody mess. Right, um, just very quickly, one other thing that um, jumped out at me this week was the fact that the Met Police have now decided that they're not getting enough people through the door, so they're going to be offering uh, £5,000 to recently retired officers, I think it's between the ranks of PC and Inspector, um, and allowing them to keep their uh, pension and earn their old salary simultaneously, as well as get a £5,000 golden uh, hello, uh, which I just think, whilst I, I applaud, I actually genuinely applaud what the Mets are doing there, because, um, you know, that shows real maturity of thinking. Uh, and a realisation, admission really, that the, the current processes aren't working in order to get people with the right skill set and through the door and they're losing an awful lot of experience. So I, I genuinely applaud what they're doing, but certainly the uh, reaction that that was getting from currently serving officers on social media that I was reading was like, uh, I'd rather... I'd rather boil my own head then go back and do that job again um another common common um kind of comment was from those officers who are in forces surrounding london like thames valley or um you know bedfordshire or essex or places like that um where they are now going to find it incredibly difficult even harder probably to to recruit if you've got that kind of stuff going on. So, yeah, again, it's another example of that whole 43-force system. There's no consistency. Um, and, and then you've got, you know, a force like the Met, um, quite understandably, but, you know, they've, they're kind of rewriting the rules there and that's going to cause problems potentially for others. So, anyway, let's get on with the interview with Duncan. Hey, there he is. I can't hear you. Hold on. It says you're connecting to audio. No, I can't. Still can't hear you. Oh, you honestly, such a fuckwit. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can see him. I can see your lips. And this is unless this is an elaborate wind up. Hey, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> DJ, 
<laughs> Hello, mate. I don't know if you can hear me. I, I'm having all sorts of problems. It, new headphones, as per instruction, and it's uh, it's not going well. You probably we gather. To, from- uh, we used to do this great wind up uh, when I was a superintendent, uh, chairing the morning tasking meeting in the force. Um, before we'd have a pre meet, there'd be like about fifteen to tw- fifteen odd would dial in, and uh, I'd say to everybody, right, when when so and so dials in, everybody pretend not to be able to hear them and uh <laughs> and you'd just be looking blankly everybody else would be ignoring them they'd be getting you'd see them getting really stressed you know yeah and um I'd, and i'd be like pointing up my ears and like shaking my head you know what i mean <laughs> and then the dial in dial out the dial back in again and be still like shaking your head at them <laughs> <laughs> anyway enough of that can i just get my excuses in first appreciate it probably looks um as if we're only we're only recording the audio but um it probably looks as if i'm sat in a um a nine-year-old girl's bedroom um that's because i am sat in my daughter's bedroom because <laughs> the because uh, we've got builders in and uh, it's really noisy so it's the only part of the house where it's it's quiet so excuse all the pink and um fluffy toys everywhere it's i promise you it's not my bedroom okay to be fair mate it's a far better excuse than it was the only screen backdrop i could find <laughs> in <laughs> um, likewise apologies i uh, am waiting for my gp to ring me um as with everybody else in the country at the moment i'm struggling to get an appointment um so they've promised me a phone call um, all right okay well so, maybe maybe you could put that on speakerphone we could listen into it <laughs> <laughs> you'll probably be able to hear my knees from here um yeah um, oh god you're turning yeah. into an old man uh turning i think i turned <laughs> as if the grey hair and the glasses weren't enough of a clue (laughs) listen mate it's great to have you on the podcast um we go back a long way don't we we certainly um, do yeah it's funny i'm looking forward to hearing all your funny stories um and before i forget i was exchanging messages with gavin ellis hi gavin yesterday he said remind duncan to tell you the story about the hairy shoes what's (laughs) up Do you know what that? Do you know what that story is? I I, I remember it was um, yeah the sadly departed Brian Wren um, <laughs> and uh, Gavin wore a pair of shoes in and I I, I can't it was back in our uh, Irish desk days and uh, I I vaguely remember the stories but it became like a living legend. I, I can, uh, Gavin I, I, can these shoes. I can I can vaguely remember those shoes. They were like dodgy. They were they were like um, kind of. Uh, a really full-on mohair kind of things brown i think they were and they yep. looked like he had like yeti's feet on them or something didn't they it, it looked like they started off maybe as a pair of suede loafers and just read a bit <laughs> it was, it was just <laughs> sorry gavin it can't, <laughs> it can't it can't have been it can't have been worse than that time i walked into the irish squad office special branch wearing um a top that i bought at the weekend and uh, it was obviously a bit of an impulse purchase. It was like bright blue kind of velour thing going on with a hood on it. And and every, and I walked in the office and honestly, you could have heard a pin drop. And, and everyone, and I think, I think it was Mock, I think it was Mocken was the first to say, son, what the fuck are you wearing? And then the whole office just completely yeah. collapsed. And I was yeah. so mortified. I actually went out to the Army and Navy store in Victoria Street and bought a new top because I couldn't wear it in the office because everybody was slaughtering me so much. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, we 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 often uh, reflect on the uh, need for brutal feedback. Uh, there was nothing more brutal than walking into the B-Squad office and uh, meeting the troops either wearing something new or, uh, yeah, yeah, brutal. <laughs> oh, it's tough love, isn't it? Tough certainly love. was. <laughs> so listen, mate, um, the reason, apart from, you know, it's great to chat here, and we had a great chat on the phone the other day, but, you know, I said, no, stop, stop, because we've got we've to get this stuff on the podcast because it's just too funny. Um, so you're here to talk about close protection aren't you um bodyguarding yeah. uh, in in the common vernacular aren't you um and uh, yeah so if you just briefly describe um pretend you don't know me um that what your credentials are in order to talk about that subject i suppose yeah sure um i basically drifted into close protection it wasn't something i ever intended to do i was lucky enough to meet uh, a guy uh, on my relief back in the day, uh, in the mid 80s, uh, who had uh, aspirations to join royalty protection. He'd been a, a Fleet Street photographer. So I, I kind of knew it existed, but uh, like most people, um, you know, that's not what you join the police for. And uh, yeah, my joining really was a byproduct of the peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, as we said earlier on, you and I were both happy um doing the work that we loved and i think probably in certainly in my case that's what i joined special branch to do was to deal with uh uh the, the situation in northern ireland and then hey there's a ceasefire <laughs> our work was drying up there was a limit to how many friday afternoon calls we could take and um i started looking around for other things to do i i, I loved special branch um didn't really want to go back in the big bad world and i i just passed my sergeants but was, was waiting to be promoted and uh Thought, what else can I do? Uh, surveillance, obviously, where you went uh, was one option, and I, I did my initial um, test for that, and that all went well. Um, and then I was offered a shots course, and I suppose that was kind of the uh, opening, really, into that world because then mm -hmm. you had to be a shot uh, to be on uh, squad, and you had to be a shot to be on uh, on close protection. And um, I did my shots course uh, to everyone's surprise, not least mine. I, I got through that. You managed um, not to shoot yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't for lack of trying, trust me. Um, but I, I think I, by that stage, I uh, was thinking, well, okay, let, let's give this a go. And as you know, uh, there was a roundabout, wasn't there, on on uh, special branch at the time. You you tended to get posted to S squad surveillance or to A squad, which was then the uh, the squad that dealt with close protection. And then you were sent out to the airport. And I'd met a few people at the airport uh, who were doing their sabbaticals. And uh, so I knew a little bit more about it. And I thought, OK, let's give that a go. And, and surveillance wasn't looking particularly promising at the time. We had uh, mm. obviously less work to do yeah. uh, than we had done when... Uh, you know, pre-9-11, uh, pre wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I did my close protection course um, up, up at Lippitz Hill, um, up in Epping Forest, which was yeah, a very strange experience. Um, but uh, past it's my course... Some, it's a very tough course, though, isn't it? It is a very tough course, and um, yeah, you've Every, got everybody comes off it covered in bruises, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, and certainly the the first the first bit is which is almost entirely firearms and close protection skills, unarmed combat, for want of a better word, uh, was brutal. I I certainly didn't expect uh, to come back as you you know you described it black and blue with bruises. Um, yeah, I, I was still playing rugby at a reasonable level. I was used to being kicked around the place, but it was nothing compared to that uh, that course, um, and. Yeah, we talked about open feedback. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. Um, 
and that was back in the day where you pretty much only got one go at it. Uh, if you dipped it, uh, tough. There are plenty of other people. Uh, and of course, the size of the squad at the time, I mean, I think we were looking at somewhere in the region of about 70 or 80 people mm-hmm. um, across all the teams, far fewer teams. Yeah. And yeah, it was brutal. You, you, you passed it or you failed it. And um, I remember having to do my uh, classification shoot, which is the, the penultimate day of the course, uh, having to do that twice. And the uh, sergeant uh, at the time from, from CO19, the firearms department who, who did the assessment saying to me, don't fuck it up, sunshine. This is it. And yeah. first four rounds went into the floor, <laughs> which, which left me with about uh, two to go. I, I, you know, it, it was a 90% uh, pass mark then, and uh, I'd already let four go. Uh, yeah, not an auspicious start. Uh, but anyway, as I said, I, I, I got through. And um, uh, actually, that the shots course then was 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 interesting. And in as much as we we had six places and six places, uh, six for special branch and six for flying squad. And uh, it, yeah, talk about chalk and cheese in oh, terms of where you are in terms of your um, yeah. policing experience. And the final exam, the very f- the the written exam, the final question was always different for special branch and for flying squad. For flying squad, it was a dot to dot of a gun, <laughs> and for us, it was a copy of that day's Times crossword. <laughs> Which... So, for those who are listening, flying squad is the uh, squad SO8. Uh, specialist operations eight uh, in Scotland Yard, which deals almost exclusively with armed robbery, robbery of cash in transit, um, robberies of banks and building societies and all that, and tends to be very old school detectives who who talk a bit like that, don't they? You fucking wanker. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. and and special branch are rather urbane, broad broadsheet reading um, sort of gentlemen, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I can imagine it was uh, a pretty uh, unusual collection of people, <laughs> isn't it? It was it, it was good fun, uh, and and they were a great crack as well. So uh, yeah, <laughs> let bygones be good bygones. <laughs> Brilliant. So, what sort of service did you have at that time when you when you um, uh, when you started all that? I think I probably had about. 12, 13. I, I, th- I think I had nine years service when I uh, when I joined the branch. Um, and this would have been around about 98, I suppose. So, yeah, 13, 12, 13 years service, I think. Right, okay. Um, and then there was quite a gap between doing your firearms course, uh, doing your advanced shoot, um, which was you know another two weeks of, uh, you know, and that was the, the, the one where we basically got beaten up and uh, <laughs> did yeah. all, all the jumping under cars and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, you do another two weeks, which was then called the Viper course or the Knives and Forks course, which were... Well, let's be honest. Uh, it was the day to day armed with a knife and fork, did you? Well, certainly for some people, um, it was as simple <laughs> as actually learning how to use a knife and fork. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I know that sounds awfully um, arrogant, but you know, it, it was a, a chance. You know, you were back put up in a hotel squad, for two weeks. Squad again, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> We, we we got put up in a hotel for two weeks with with our instructors and um the, the instructors sat on a different table it was like being back on relief with the rt drivers the advanced drivers sitting on one table and uh yeah. you know heaven forbid that you as a mere mortal would uh share a table with them and yeah the students would sit in their syndicates on the other table very um, what the hotel made of it i have no idea but uh so then that that two weeks was really around you know how you did your tactical plans how you did 
uh, you know, the, the day-to-day stuff, um, you know, mm. meeting and greeting hosts, um, mm. how to behave, all, all those sort of things. Uh, and again, yeah. it was a tough course, you know, um, culminating in a final exam where uh, by that stage we had um, not full, full-on firearms attacks, but we had simulated attacks um, of, of other kinds. Um, and, and again, that shows how the, the course has changed over the 20 yeah. years that I've been involved in close protection. Um, but yeah, it's culminated in a uh, two-day assessment, and you know, it, it it was tough. I'll make no yeah. bones about it. I mean, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, in a similar way to surveillance, although it's different, because obviously with close protection, you are a an overt, you are overtly out there as a police officer, albeit not in uniform, but you have to be prepared to go into kind of almost any environment, don't you? A bit like surveillance. Um, <laughs> so you need to be able to conduct yourself appropriately in the you know three-star michelin restaurants with mm. the principal yeah. sitting at the table next to you yeah um equally you need to be able to conduct yourself in a a fairly rough part of town maybe where the uh the principal the dignitary is doing a bit of a walk around meeting and greeting um members of the public isn't that right yeah absolutely and, and this was my first introduction to the very uh, different worlds uh, between special branch protection and uh, royalty protection. Um, the protocols around looking after the royal family are far more strict. Um, even, uh, and I, I, I uh, you know, fully accept that things are changing um, at the palace, um, and and they are trying to uh, get away from some of the formality. Uh, but it was a very, very different world. Uh, certainly, SO14 royalty protections, it was then. Um, was was formed because um, Queen Victoria, who was the first person to actually request close protection, as we now it, uh, know it these days, uh, and I'm sorry to any American listeners, uh, you didn't invo- invo- invent close protection, um, but Queen Victoria uh, w- was attacked several times during her reign, and she was the first person to actually ask for close protection. And I think purely historical uh, reasons, it was given to special branch, not least because we were the only department at the time that had people who were used to carrying firearms because uh, special branch then had a, a large number of ex-military officers who'd come from the province to work in London for the Met Police. Mm. Um, and over a period of a few years, she decided that she wanted uh, you know, to have what she called gentleman police officers from A Division. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that was the, the beginnings of royalty protection, which you know formed into its own department, uh, mm. completely separate from, uh, from Special Branch. Yeah, so, um, you, you've, so you're quite sort of unusual, I suppose, in, in that you've both done the Special Branch side of things, which is the sort of the political and military um vips i suppose as well as the royalty side haven't you yeah yeah and, and obviously now with uh, the two departments having merged to form royalty and specialist protection um you know i'm i'm no longer in that <laughs> fairly unique position but uh, yeah i think certainly when uh, when i went over to 14 on promotion um there were probably only about four or five of us who'd done it um you know it it was very unusual i don't think it was anything deliberate uh, but uh, when you say think, done it, do you mean you'd done the political side of things yeah. before, before going to royalty? Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, when when I joined Special Branch, we we were dealing with uh, obviously certain members of the cabinet, um, certain ambassadors, uh, and again, uh, because history dictated the terms under which close protection was was provided. Sorry, but that's my phone. If I can just yeah, if, if you just put it on the speaker, um, so we can listen all listening, that would be good. I tell you, oh, I'll, sorry. 
I'll, I'll edit this. Right, let me answer it first. Hello, it's Duncan. Hello there. Yeah, thanks. I'm... Uh... <laughs> Let's have some there. Relaxing music playing in the background. While Duncan discusses his, his rash. Hey, there he is. Oh, can hear you again. No, still can't hear you. I'm not. I promise you, I'm not winding you up either. There we go. There so we better. go. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. That? Sorry, I, I've. Um, get, they have get... begrudgingly agreed to give me an appointment at half eleven. So uh, maybe we can come back to this if if we haven't. Covered yeah. Yeah. The... Well, maybe maybe if uh, maybe if we do a part two, I do think this, we'll see how we go today. But there might be yeah. a part two, in which case you can come back and give us some, not just a, uh, you can give us a medical update as well as. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if if you it, to, it may involve a humane killer that's if, if the trouble <laughs> if you want to send me your entire medical history as well i can put it in the podcast notes <laughs> just is that gdpr compliant do you think <laughs> so where were we we were talking about um how queen victoria um, yeah so some, i think we've migrated gentleman. to talking about how um uh, special branch basically were uh, dealing with sort of like the fallout from northern ireland really so right, okay. we, we were still giving uh, close protection to uh, certain senior officers who'd served in uh, the province, um, uh, which again, you know, now I think if you mention that to uh, protection officers currently serving on the squad, uh, they would probably go, "Really? We looked after the military." Um, mm. But basically, chief of the defence staff, people like that, anybody who who served at a, a senior level yeah. in the military was then getting protection if they wanted it. Um, or they merited it would probably be a better way to put it. Um, but also high court judges in Northern Ireland as well. Um, mm. it, it was a very different world. Uh, and yeah. everything that we did, especially threat-wise, was based around what was going on in Northern Ireland. And whilst we protected other people, uh, partly by international protocol, um, and of course we had the author, uh, Simon Rushdie, um, mm. was receiving protection then as well. But that was based purely on threat. Um, and yeah. you know, arguably to this day, probably the, the, the one principal that was under a genuine threat for the entire time that he was under our uh, warship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and uh, I know a lot of the people who were on that team, the, the Rushdie team, as you do as well. And um, yeah, and full disclosure, my brother, uh, who you'll know, he was on, he yeah. was in special branch, and he was also a protection officer and, and protected a lot of uh, high-profile individuals uh, during that period of time. So, so, um, so just uh, as it was back then, um, there are certain individuals who get protection by sort of by kind of default, aren't there? Um, yeah. So just sort of run through. It doesn't have to be a absolutely one hundred percent accurate list, but just run through who those people are. Yeah, so uh, certainly on on the the royalty side, uh, th this number has been uh, dramatically reduced. It used to be pretty much anybody of, of the working family, um, and over the years, that's that's been reduced to only getting protection for official events and things like that, uh, and not having it as day to day, twenty four hours, as as the majority of our uh, protected principles have had over the years, um, and that's now reduced to the point where several members of the royal family. 
uh, yeah, fairly senior members of the royal family, dare I say, don't have uh, protection at all or have it, you know, depending on, on what they're doing um, in, their, in their professional lives. But uh, certainly on, on the um, special grant side of things, uh, it was basically the certain members of the cabinet, uh, obviously the prime minister, and to dispel uh, myths on that, the uh, prime minister does not get it for life uh, by, by right. Uh, John Major, when he was prime minister, changed that. Um, so again, it's, it's threat-based, although I, I hasten to add, I'd, I don't think too many of them de have declined it, um, but uh, international protocol then kicks in. So mm. uh, secretaries of state, um, basically foreign secretary, home secretary, most countries now uh, accept that those roles um, require close protection. And we were tied in obviously with the EU when we were still members of the EU as well. So there was a working group in the EU that decided a, a lot of decisions around that. Um, mm. But the home office basically decides who in the UK gets close protection. And that's done on a case-by-case -case basis outside of international protocols. Yeah. So just come back to your point about how, how prime ministers historically received um, close protection for their, for their entire lives. Um, you know, that was an interesting one because certainly whenever I was in special branch, there was individuals who were on the protection teams of prime ministers who had been out of office for a very, very long oh. time. You know, people yeah. like Ted Heath, hmm. Um, for example, yeah. um, and uh, and obviously the cost of that, given the turnover of prime ministers, particularly that we've had in the last say ten years, for example, maybe not, maybe maybe ten years isn't the greatest example. Let's go back a bit further, fifteen years. Hmm. So you're thinking about Blair, Brown, Brown. Cameron, Cameron, May, Theresa May, um, the current incumbent, so. Bojo. Um, yeah, so that's a significant cost of each of those. Nick, and don't forget Nick Clegg as well. Um, although, uh, you know, because Nick Clegg received close protection when he was Deputy Prime Minister. Um, Deputy Prime Minister is, a, is another one which, again, has, has sort of come and gone through the years. Um, sometimes they receive close protection. Again, that was largely dictated by, mm. you know, world events as, as they were at the time. Um, but yeah. uh, and, and particular, you know, let's be brutally honest about this uh, particular expediency as well. Um, mm. You know, there is no doubt that the Home Office is put under pressure, you know, to, to facilitate a close mm. protection for certain individuals at certain times, whether it's uh, domestically or internationally. Yeah. So um, there's so much that we can talk about with all of this. So I'm just thinking where to start with this. I think um, just describe a typical day in a close protection. So you are, so you've been on the Prime Minister's team, haven't you? Sure. Um, yeah. And you've been on a lot of those high profile individuals teams. Yeah, I, I, I think funnily enough, the, the Prime Minister's team is probably a, a bad example in as much as the resources that the Prime Minister's team gets um, are very different from the rest of the squad. Um, you've got more people to work with, but you've also got the other bits and pieces. You've obviously got the DPG um, doing the uniform protection outside number 10. But because it is number 10, uh, it's basically a, an, an island site with, with security around it. Um, it, it. It's maybe not atypical of, of right. uh, close protection. But you know, if I took, for example, uh, one of my early uh, domestic uh, principals, uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, um, normally it would happen after a cabinet reshuffle uh, if they hadn't had close protection before. Um, and basically they would be invited and that <laughs> sounds very, very arcane, but you are invited to have close protection. So that would normally uh, require uh, some, somebody very senior from the Home Office and the head of uh, royalty, um, either royalty or, or, well, actually not royalty, because of course they get it by default, but um, special branch uh, protection, 
chief superintendent, superintendent would come down to the private office and formally invite them to have close protection, go through the rules. And uh, if, if you're ever after uh, killing five or 10 minutes, um, yes, minister does a, a classic um, spoof of that situation right. um, where the, the then prime minister is offered close protection. And it wasn't wasn't far off that it was uh, quite funny to sit there in your suit with the chief superintendent and the home office and go through all the requirements that they would be uh, expected to stick to and you know it came as quite a shock to them and i certainly mm. remember uh sort of like the the look of surprise when they were told yes you are going to have uniform officers outside your house um you are going to have someone driving you around um you know it, it's it's a big big ask so they would mm. be formally invited to receive close protection uh, the Home Office would then uh, do a very thorough search of the of the house and put in the hardware uh, for you know, alarms, uh, panic alarms, et cetera, et cetera, CCTV, whatever was required, depending on the environment. Um, and from that moment, basically, uh, <laughs> they were they were lumbered with whichever team was sort of scrambled together because often you, you got no notice whatsoever. I mean, I, yeah. I would like to think that my posting to uh, the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland wasn't entirely coincident, uh, coincidental with the fact that I just left the Irish desk. Right. But quite often, it's who was available in the in the office, uh, mm-hmm. who you know who wasn't already on a team, and yeah. you know, with a much much smaller squad then as well. Um, you know, sometimes it was just sheer luck as to who you ended up with, and then you'd be introduced to the to the VIP or principal, as as, as we would refer to them as, and you were off and running. And mm. you know, an average working day was dictated almost exclusively by the the nature and the um, work ethic of of the of the VIP. And you know, I'm I'm going to put this out here nice and early. Uh, I know we all have some, you know, most of us have very strong views on uh, our politicians. Yeah, I can say to a man and woman. I haven't worked with a single uh, principal on the political side who hasn't worked like a dog. Uh, and literally, mm. you know, if if people are worried about what they get for their tax dollar, um, these people work incredibly hard. And right. uh, to, to I won't mention uh, their name, but you know, my first principal uh, had a very very full social life um, related to work. Uh, they would yeah. think nothing of having a working dinner at ten eleven o'clock at night, mm. um, and of course. The other people that people forget is they go home with that little red box that you see on the TV. Yeah. That is a, I'm sure you know, it's a briefcase full of yeah, work yeah. that they have to do before they go to work in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And they need um, to be on, on uh, up, up, to, up to speed on the brief, don't they? Yeah. And, and it wouldn't be unusual for us to, um, you know, parade at, at, at Scotland Yard to pick up our, our kit at five, six o'clock in the morning, pick up our VIPs from their home address, take them to the gym. Mm. Um, and luckily, there was a gym at the House of Parliament, which uh, you know some of them used, but some of them preferred to use private gyms away from that, which would mean an even earlier start. Um, then ordinarily, it'd be into the office. Uh, you might be able to have a little bit of R and R there, but obviously, someone has to be in the office in case you know there's a, a call to vote in the House uh, mm. or you know something happens and you have to go out. But ordinarily, you you would have a rough idea of how your day was going to pan out mm. from the previous Friday when the diary secretary would put together what you're going to be doing next week. Right. Um, so, that, so it's the diary secretary who defines the schedule for the coming week. And yeah, the, di- you make the diary... your plans around that then, yeah? Yeah, um, and you know, this, this is, I think, for most of us, the big difference between royalty protection as it was and uh, working for um, members of the, go- the government. 
most of the stuff, especially you know, for Her Majesty and the, the more senior roles, that's been in the diary for months, if not years, yeah, um, yeah, especially yeah. the big events. You yeah, know, the, no the, these, these trips that you see the royals doing now for the Jubilee, you know, they were planned years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they get updated as you go along. But, you know, it's not like we didn't know that this was going to be yeah. the uh, Platinum Jubilee. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a very different world in the, in uh, in terms of politics. But you know that you're going to have Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's questions on a Wednesday afternoon. And that's basically uh, a three-line whip. Everyone's yeah. going to be there. Yeah. Um, but you will also know Northern Ireland, for example, that there would probably be a trip towards the end of the week uh, to the province or maybe at the beginning of the week, depending on how that worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that stage, we were accompanying one of us would, would accompany over to uh, Hillsborough Castle. Um, but but also you had things such as their surgery. So every mm-hmm. uh, member of parliament tries to get back to their surgery on a Thursday night. And Friday is basically spent meeting the constituents. You know, the, these are the people yeah, that voted them yeah. in after all. So Friday is normally spent in the constituency. And, you know, depending on how their diary looks, maybe you came back on the mm-hmm. uh, Friday night or you stayed up there for the weekend. It, it really just depended on the on the principle. Yeah, and it's certainly, it's an unbelievably um, full-on life for a protection yeah. officer, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the time that they spend away from home. Um, yeah. It's uh, not family-friendly at all, is it? No, no, no. And, and I, I remember, like it was yesterday, my introduction to the squad, uh, sitting down with the, uh, the, the then uh, OCU commander, and him basically saying to me, do not come back into this office in six months, having been nicked for drink driving or having been caught doing something you shouldn't have been doing uh, mm-hmm. and leave the girls alone. And that was that yeah. was that was welcome. Welcome to a squad. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, you remember from your time at airport, uh, the airport was full of people who'd been on a squad and S squad who were either going through divorces yeah. or, um, you know, going there to sober up uh, you know it is a brutal yeah. world um, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah and you know it did take a, a hell of a, um, a toll on on some people and yeah. Yeah. you know to this uh, to this day I mean I, I would say my wife is a saint for putting up with the nonsense yeah. that she's had to put up with um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that goes for the partners of, of pretty much everybody else uh, who works on on whether it's a squad or squad or whatever you know it, yeah. it, yeah, is it was very instance. it was very very unusual that someone yeah. didn't end up getting divorced in that yeah department, absolutely yeah. i mean and, that's the the price they end up paying yeah, unfortunately and, that, and that's something that um you know we can talk a bit more about that later on but yeah. the, I, would, I would say this is probably an ideal opportunity to point out and dispel any rumors around the uh, the bodyguard series that the bbc showed um i I bumped into an old friend of ours uh, the other day, Mr. Sinclair, and yeah. uh, he and I both now start any introductions we do to formal um, speaking engagements by pointing out that uh, neither of us has slept with the Home Secretary. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, I mean, so far removed from what close protection actually involves uh, as to be yeah. laughable. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, yeah. I was told by my wife to switch it off after half an hour because I was starting to get a bit upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I just routinely avoid those sort of things because they just <laughs> wind me up so much you know but um yeah i mean certain teams as you know certain teams are more disruptive than others aren't they yeah i think absolutely. i think the one the one that was sort of notorious for that i suppose was the foreign secretary wasn't it because sure. yeah. they are away from home uh abroad a lot of the time and if they're yeah. not actually with the principal abroad they're abroad wrecking and uh doing all and, and setting things up for yeah. when the principal comes over aren't they yeah, and and you know you you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, you know, the 
the size of the team also matters. Um, you, know, you, you end up um, you know, with some teams where you, know, you can effectively do an early turn and a late turn, which mm. at least gives you some time at home. Um, and also, you, know, you needed the time yourself to decompress. You, know, you can't yeah. be alert all day, every day, if you're doing 16, 17 hour days with you know, four or five hours sleep, you know, you're, yeah. you're carrying firearms, you're driving high performance vehicles, yeah. uh, and you're supposed to be compass mentors. So, yeah. um, you know, the Secret Service, for example, the US Secret Service, you know, they do a seven hour tour on duty with the principal, but they have basically a 10 hour day. Mm. A day and a half, uh, an hour and a half of which is spent briefing and debriefing, uh, you yeah. know, dealing with their equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We, we never had that. And mm. the, the majority of the time you were working all days. Um, mm. So you would have maybe a team of uh, eight people, uh, but they were split into four or split into th- uh, threes, depending on how many you had. Mm. And basically you would do your changeover days, which would uh, normally be a, a, a Tuesday and a, and a Thursday where you would do a, an early turn, and a late turn, and then go into the weekend rest of the time you were doing all days and that meant quite literally <laughs> you yeah. you got up you went to work um and you came home when when the vip finished for the day um and it, yeah, yeah it could be absolutely brutal um, it's a very strange life though, isn't it is. i remember absolutely. having these conversations with my brother and um very strange life yeah. and um yeah they end up becoming people have been on ace what used to be called a squad didn't it yeah. back back in the day uh which was special branch protection department and we used to tease them that they were like thoroughbred resources weren't they 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 became very fussy with their food didn't they you know <laughs> <laughs> you know there was special yeah. special so you'd have the surveillance teams looking as if they'd slept in their clothes half the time yeah and would yeah. be quite, you know, eat quite comfortable, you know, eating a, a fried egg sandwich. And then your A squad, somebody would come back from A squad and they'd be like, oh no, oh no, oh no, dear chap, oh. I don't, I don't eat in that restaurant. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I honestly, yeah, I mean, we used to laugh at uh, our colleagues on, on the royalty side for twiddling with their, um, with their cuffs, um, you know, mimicking Prince Charles. Um, oh, right. But, you know, if that was the end of it, that would <laughs> they, be a result. Their, they used to put their hands in their suit jacket. In, in inside pockets. the suit jacket, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like Napoleon, stuff. yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was quite interesting to watch how people's uh, tastes and expectations changed. And I, I remember day one with my very first close protection team, sort of permanent team, I was sent up by my then sergeant um, to go and find a hotel that was suitable for the team. And... Uh, Let's just say my my pick, uh, which was budget, uh, was not uh, was not uh, accepted, and, <laughs> and I was told sacked, you you're in special bunch, you're on a squad, yeah. Uh, and we we ended up, you know, staying at a hotel that was called the Grand. It was Grand by name, but not by nature. But uh, you know, that was the expectation, and of course, I didn't know any better. I mean, I, <laughs> I just thought, well, I thought we were supposed to be saving the taxpayer money and chose. A, I think it was a Premier Inn, uh, but but um, you were popular. Oh yeah, yeah. That uh, <laughs> that that conversation was very short and blunt, but uh, yeah. So in terms of clothing, I mean, they always looked very dapper, didn't they? As I recall. Um, and uh, did you get a, an allowance for, for for nice suits and shoes? And no, all we didn't. Uh, royalty did, and it was always a bit of a, uh, a gripe. And, and back in the day, it, it was a very strange. So we were we were still retained on uh, basically. The basic net police allowance system so we we basically got overtime uh you know on time and a third or time and a half if we were on rest days etc mm. uh, and heaven forbid double time if it was a cancelled rest day mm. um but uh everything else was done you know, 
on well, what I was saying, on receipts. It wasn't even done on receipts then. You got an allowance for being away from home overnight, but I, it, it was fairly paltry. The allowances only really kicked in when you were abroad. Right. Um, but you you got the bulk standard plain clothes allowance that everybody got. I think mm. it was was it thirty quid a month. Which or is when you think about it. I mean, I never saw a scruffy A squad officer. They always no. looked very dapper. Yeah. Um, and and I'm thinking. Um, bloody hell, they must be having to spend a bloody fortune on clothes here, because it's always, you know, German, German, I don't even know how you pronounce that, German Street? German um, Street, yeah. German Street suits and um, yeah. shirts and ties, silk ties yeah. and really expensive, you know, shoes. And yeah. I thought, bloody hell, this must be setting them back. I, I just assumed yeah. that you got an alliance for all that. Club. No, we, we didn't. Um, and again, I think it, it, it comes down to what was expected. Uh, I think my first suit on a squad was was probably Marks and Spencer's or Next or something. Um, but Until you were told. Until yeah, I, I, and um, I, I'm, I'm a funny story. I'm sure you remember dear old Amy Sangera. Yeah. And uh, I remember Amy had just gone off and bought his first Dax suit, and he was so proud of it. He'd actually left a little tag on his on his um, sleeve, yeah, the one that you're supposed to cut off. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he turned up at Checkers. Uh, we were there for some government conference and uh, or cabinet uh, conference. And I remember the old sweat just absolutely wetting themselves. And I didn't know what they were laughing at. I, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, and then it, it was pointed out to him that he was supposed to take this thing off. But yeah, right. no, people, people spent a fortune on clothes. And I think, it, again, it was peer yeah. group pressure. Um, you, know, and- you know, the funny stories I remember is because I've never been on, I was never on protection, but I remember, I know tons and tons of people who were, and uh, the, some of the stories are just hilarious. And um the stories I used to love hearing was, you know, with the go out of town to sort of, I don't know, Manchester, you know, Birmingham, Glasgow, whatever. And very often you'd be given um, a leg up by some local officers who would support the protection team. Mm. Yeah. Um, so they would be um, close protection trained. Yeah. Um, very often they might come from a local farms unit or something like that. Yeah. But the Met, the Met wankers, um, from a squad used to always take the piss didn't they of the local oh, yeah the local old bill and yeah. the one the, the expression that used to uh, i used to remember laughing at was they used to turn up um the local old bill would turn up wearing their pirate shoes do you remember do you remember, <laughs> do you remember those dodgy <laughs> shoes back in the 1990s the, the winkle pickers oh, well either no the, the winkle pickers came next but this was before winkle pickers this is pirate shoes that had the big buckle across the oh top. yeah 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 do you remember, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you'd get some A squad, some sniffy A squad officer coming back from some deployment up in Glasgow or something saying they all had fucking parrot shoes on and yeah. um, from the locals, you know. But then you had Winkle Pickers came in next, didn't you? That was more sort of 2000s, wasn't yeah. it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And coloured and coloured suits, too. You know, it, uh, I think my first next suit was was a dark green and like a British racing green. Yeah. That uh, only ever saw battle once. <laughs> it was dispatched or covered, never to be seen again. No, yeah. it, it, I mean, there was a, a huge amount of snobbery now. And you can look back on it and go, actually, you know, at, at best, it was unkind. But actually, a lot of it was actually quite childish and, and spiteful but uh, again yeah. we, we we had drivers then too I mean, although mm. they were they were police officers and they were close protection trained they were employed uh normally from traffic de- uh, departments um where they'd had lots of experience of of, of driving uh, high performance cars um mm. and they were known as ofds uh, uh you know mm. as <laughs> what's the ofds done for um well i thought you'd have known that one given the title <laughs> of your book but only fucking drivers um <laughs> okay. and yeah, again, I, I remember 
one of my very very early jobs uh, i went up to one of uh we were looking after a visitor and so with, with the visitors it was quite often if they were very low profile it would be just you and a driver and yeah. uh you know you pick up pick them up at the airport drive them around mm-hmm. uh, we went out for a lunch and I felt a bit sorry for uh, my driver because, you know, mm. he's the same rank as me, uh, top lad. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I sent, uh, this smacks a bit of Beverly Hills cop, so I sent a guy out with a silver platter to the car with some <laughs> sandwiches for him <laughs> and <laughs> did my expenses at the end of the month. And I remember the, um, my governor at the time saying, you did what? <laughs> you fed the driver. <laughs> And of course, they had nowhere to go. They had to sit in the car oh. because obviously the car has oh. to stay outside the restaurant or the venue, engine running with them ready to go in case you have to bail out. And oh, you know, I mean, bless him. He, I think, I think the driver at the time, um, Chris, lovely guy. Um, I, to this day, I think he still thinks, "Well, that was a nice touch dunk, but I'm not quite sure why you did it." He, he, he probably already bought some sandwiches because that was the expectation then. I mean, you know. Yeah. It, it changed around about 2006 when the branch yeah. came to an end uh, and we became our own department, uh, SO1 mm. as it was then called. Mm. Um, and basically everybody became protection officers. Um, so, mm. uh, yeah, no, strange times. And so, let, so just worth just talking about, because uh, as you know, when you, you talked about how the selection process is in terms of who gets protection and why, um, but obviously there are, there are very interesting and very often not in a good way, group of people, aren't they, the principals? Mm. Um, big egos. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of them are very kind to their protection officers yeah. um, and very respectful and uh, sensitive to the fact that, you know, they've got a life as well. Others yeah. are the complete opposite, aren't they? And, yeah. treat, and treat the protection officers like shit, basically, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I, and again, this is this isn't party political. I, I think it's more. Of a, I'll try that again in English. Uh, more of a reflection on how society's changed. Um, mm. uh, dare I say, our our older uh, principles. I mean, you mentioned uh, Sir Ted Heath, who, who barely spoke at all, but mm. uh, had a very uh, almost paternal attitude towards us. Um, you know, we may only be protection officers, but we were his protection officers. Um, mm. uh, and and uh, you know. Um, Baroness Thatcher was the classic case in point. I mean, she mm. very she had a very protective attitude uh, towards her team, partly born out of the fact, obviously, from the Brighton bombing. Um, mm. You know, she. I think it's fair to say that some of the old school uh, conservatives um, had been brought up through the troubles, mm. and they took it very seriously. And I think looking at the current um, government, that maybe has shifted a little bit. Um, and again, I don't want to make this political, but for me, uh, the Labour government, because I, I started close protection when we had a, a, a Labour administration under Tony Blair. And their attitude was was very, very welcoming. I mean, you know, I think, mm. as you'd expect, a degree of suspicion. Um, mm. You know, uh, quite a few members of the government have been members of the Communist Party before they've joined the Labour Party. And mm. they had grown up in a world of... So they, you know, saw, they saw you almost like a spy? Um, I, I found um, that most of the principles that uh, we, we worked for then had a begrudging respect for us um mm. it, it, like any relationship you know it takes time um mm. and those first few days uh, and again this is another big difference between ourselves and royalty where you know where, where they get it from the moment that they're uh you know part of the family whether that's as a as a kiddie or if they marry into the royal family mm. um they're brought up with it they they know what to expect and their expectations mm. are very high um 
as, as, as you would uh, expect from someone who has known no different. Mm. But for our principles, that first protection team set the benchmark uh, for any future relationship they have. And yeah. that's why it's so important that from the get-go, you, you have mm. uh, a, a degree of trust um, yeah. uh, and openness too, because yeah, you're yeah. spending more time with these people than you are with your own family. Yeah. Uh, you are seeing them warts and all. Um, yeah. And uh, it's very, very easy to toe down the, well, this is the way we do it. Um, this is what yeah. we train for. Um, and you will do this, you will do that. Um, mm. Close protection isn't like that. You won't last very long unless you're prepared to you know, meet them halfway on the things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are some things that are non-negotiable, but yeah. um, I would say there are, you, you mentioned about tough individuals. I mean, certainly a couple of uh, alpha males and females that I've dealt with, um, saying yes and no to them is not uh, a conversation you want to be having with them. If you, mm. you, well, so if you want to stay on that team, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah it's a strange one, isn't it? Because... Um, the dynamics, certainly from the conversations I've had with uh, various pe- good friends over the years, you know, when they t- sit in the pub and tell you the stories, some of them are just absolutely hilarious. Um, there, there is a kind of a, a, da- a bit of a dance, isn't there, that goes on between the principal and the protection team initially until everybody kind of settles into a nice little daily rhythm. Um, yep. And... Uh, as you say, there's certain areas that are that are not up for negotiation, and yeah. others where you have to give. Yeah. Um, but uh, protection officers have a very subtle way of training their principal to behave themselves. Yeah, absolutely. If, if they're being a bit of an asshole. Yeah. And and it's very very funny some of the things that I'm again I won't name names obviously, but <laughs> I remember a couple of uh, colleagues telling me about how their principal was being. A bit of an arsehole um, on a very regular basis and um, they decided that they were going to sort of train them uh, to, to be nice and um, so there's one occasion when they were coming off a plane from somewhere and the, the principal was struggling with all his boxes and papers and goodness knows what what else and was dropping on the floor, getting all flustered and sort of barking at the protection officers. Um, you know, you just don't just fucking stand there, you know, fucking pick them up kind of thing. And the and both protection <laughs> officers sort of made a sort of excuse and said, sorry, sorry, sir, that, um, you know, we're, we're here to protect you, not to um, tidy up after you. you know, it's that kind of subtle way of saying, right, you know, if, if you don't start behaving yourself, if, you, if, you, if you're nice to us, then we'll help you. But if you're not, then you can sort your own bloody papers out. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It, it, it has to be give and take. And uh, yeah, very similar story. I, I remember one Saturday morning, uh, VIP I was looking after wanted to go to Borough Market and uh, meet with a, a fellow ministerial uh, colleague. Yeah, just for a shop, which was very unusual. Um, uh, but they that was the agreement. So we 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 turned up, and uh, it was a, it was a single person prot. So I was on my own. I, I had a, a protection driver, mm. uh, but uh, we'd been wandering around Borough Market for a, about half an hour, and the uh, the other minister turned around to me all of a sudden and said, "Are you following us?" <laughs> <laughs> my principal turned to them quick as a flash and said, "This is Duncan. They're, they're my protection officer." 
what the hell do you need protection for? And this bizarre conversation went on for like five minutes while the principal tried to justify why they had close protection and this other individual didn't. And the next thing, the 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 other minister just turns to me and goes, well, if you're here then, you might as well have these and handed me all her shopping. <laughs> and I was like, before I had a chance to do anything, the, yeah. the principal just turned around and said, oh, Duncan doesn't do shopping no. <laughs> or any other kind of bag for that matter. Yes, yes. And... This other uh, minister just turned around and went, well, what's the point then? What is the point of having close protection if they're not going to carry things? Oh, and stormed off. <laughs> well, there was another, again, not naming any names, there was another one who lived away in a, in a sort of a country pile out in the, the sticks and used to try and get his protection officers to work basically as unpaid farm laborers oh yes i think i know exactly and, who you um, mean <laughs> and, and some of some of them and he was a he was a he was a bully and yeah. uh, you know some of them were uh, kind of just took the path of least resistance and kind of you know helped him out with these yeah. tasks around the, yeah. the farm and others dug their heels in and said no i'm not i'm not a bloody farm laborer you yeah. know if you want to go and good i get yourself on the uh, you know go and hire someone for the job center to do that yeah. um so yeah there's some very weird and wonderful yeah. kind of um dynamics going on there wasn't there and 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 that you know uh, you know things have changed um as, as we all know but i think or i like to think that was one of the criteria that you were selected on um your ability to think on your feet to engage with people um you know with with a degree of grace and humor and humor when dealing with some of these very important people you know is a, is a double-edged sword you get it wrong and you you know you run the risk of insulting them um and being in a lot of trouble but if you can't talk to people uh, yeah. in an adult way um yeah. and, and also it comes under personal responsibility I and mean, it's never a comfortable position to be telling someone um you know, who's a senior member of the government or a senior member of the royal family that they're not to do something mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know that that's a, a gutsy call for you know let's be honest we, we're, we're police officers we're not trained uh at that level you know um, mm-hmm. you know obviously when you get to staff college as you go up through the ranks you you get a little bit of uh, coaching on on how to hold these discussions with people but most of us um it, it's it's hard and mm-hmm. you know it's quite often done in 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 front of other senior colleagues, senior civil servants, the rest of your team, wives and husbands. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not a great place to be unless you've got a degree of self-confidence and um, also resilience. Just be able to actually state the party own. line, um, yeah. stick to the party line without you know being patronising and uh, mm. and ultimately doing the the jobs worth thing. And the, you, know, you do see it from time to time. It, you know, I'm not going to point you fingers see, and say. Uh, did you did you see people having major fallouts with their protection officers? Oh, and, and getting absolutely kicked, kicked off yeah. the team. Yeah, yeah. I I remember a, um, an incident in Afghanistan. I'll come on to the the high risk stuff that we used to do. Uh, and I remember a, a new um, supervisor to the department. Uh, tried to give a formal um, II marsh. I appreciate a lot of the listeners won't understand what that is, but it's, it's a template for for a, for a formal briefing to the Secretary of State for Defence uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, I remember his uh, sort of chief of staff, who was a Lieutenant Colonel, coming out of this meeting, shaking his head in disbelief. He said, "I don't believe what I've just seen." And of course, the supervisor has reverted to type. This is how you give a briefing. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Secretary of State, all he wanted to know really was when do I get in and out of the helicopter? How do I get in and out of the helicopter? Yeah. And are you going to be right there on my shoulder in case people start shooting at me? It mm-hmm. was Afghanistan. It didn't need to be a full on briefing 
showing you know what vehicles we had and all the rest yeah, of it. But yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect that that particular individual only did that briefing once. <laughs> Just while you while you're on the subject, defence sector was it defence sector? Do you say? Or yeah. Senior defence sector. So there's a funny story when I was, I went down to London to meet up with a couple of the guys um, from Special Bunch days. Um, this would have been about oh god, well, it was pre. Oh, it was Labour. Was Des Bryan was defence secretary? He was Labour, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. So this is yeah, really, I worked. So this has really gone back now, um, pre two thousand and ten. Yeah. And um, I met. We we had a few pints, not loads, three or four pints in a local pub near near Scotland Yard, and we were then making our way down the embankment towards that. Um, what you call that? That ship that's got the pub on it um, oh tatchel castle that's it tatchel yep. castle we can know scary that i knew that and it was that. there on command wasn't it and, and, in, and in the di- <laughs> and in the distance i'm going to give him a shout out because he's such a top bloke in the distance i i could see um dave gibson walking yeah. towards us yeah, yeah. With, the one with and only a, with an unknown male i'd never seen before and and i had a few pints on board and i was a bit giddy about being back in london and being with my mates and everything you know what i mean um so I was starting shouting at him. He was like, I was like shouting, Gibbo! Gibbo! <laughs> and he didn't seem to be responding to me at all. I was like, obviously yeah. dead slow on the uptake. And um, I went up to him and literally, he was looking at me like a startled rabbit, is sort of almost like subliminally shaking his head at me. And uh, and I went up and threw my arms around and went, Gibbo! And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you for ages. And, and Gibbo stops and sort of peels me off him and he goes, Ian, can I introduce you to the Secretary of State for Defence, Mr. Des Bryan? <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it's funny you should mention that, Ian, because I, I um, was the first uh, sergeant on uh, Des Bryan's team and uh, I'm sure Des won't mind me uh, saying it, it was a difficult introduction to close protection uh, again it was uh, I, i'm sure he took the post over as a as a last minute uh, cabinet reshuffle um and i know i was up with uh mr greeny um in the, yeah. in the chief superintendent's office waiting for the postings to come out and mm. uh, uh des's posting was one of the last ones to be announced and of course at the time uh defense got close protection didn't always um through the years and the only person available that first weekend was Dave. And so Dave, yeah. um, he, he won it. He, 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 he was, he was free that weekend. Uh, I, mm. I feeling I was, I was I, probably the reason I was there with Chris anyway, was I was the duty sergeant at the time, I think. And uh, anyway, Dave was available, um, went down on the Friday morning, met with Des and took him up to, uh, to, to Edinburgh for, the, for his first weekend with close protection. And then, uh, just by sheer coincidence, I think by the Wednesday, Thursday, I was told I was the new sergeant on that team. So Dave yeah. had literally just filled in a gap. Yeah. And uh, so we repeat the project, uh, the whole uh, business the next weekend. We go up to Edinburgh and uh, to his constituency in Glasgow. And we had an absolute nightmare of a weekend. He he didn't want us there. Mm. Um, we basically we're all on tender hooks uh he's a, he's yeah. a barrister so I, I think his his attitude towards the police was probably um skeptical at best yeah and i remember we we landed back at heathrow on the sunday night and uh he had a, a big week ahead of him and mm-hmm. uh he was already quite tense and then we had no uniform officers to meet us off the plane at heathrow and i'm trying to say to him well we kind of need to wait for the uniform guys he said I've been doing this every day of my working life for 10 years. I know yeah. how to get out of T1 DOMS. 
yeah, and just started yeah. walking out. And then I saw these two uniform officers with MP5s running to catch us up. Oh, and I, I just remember saying to him, uh, sir, trust me, things will get better. And he said, well, they bloody better. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, Dave eventually took the team over from me. I, you know, he as good as said to me, why can't I have Dave Gibson back? It was it was just a horrible introduction to close well, protection. I suppose, I suppose the fact that Dave was uh, Dave was Scottish would have helped, wouldn't it? I suppose yeah. maybe just and, in terms of that but relationship. But to be to be fair to to uh, Des Brown, yeah, he became a very very good friend of 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 all of us. Um, mm, and mm. Um, you know, no, he, he took he, that whenever I whenever I made a complete tit of myself on the embankment, he took that really really well. Yeah, and he was he was laughing his head yeah. off. Yeah, um, a real a real gentleman to be fair he to him. Said, and, uh, he said, "Where are you guys off to?" And we said, "Oh, we're just off to the Tattershall Castle for a for a few beers." And uh, he said, "Oh, can I come with you?" <laughs> and, and Dave said, "I said, yeah. sir, I think you've we've got to get you to the house for there's a vote in like twenty minutes or something." You know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so let's talk a little bit about the um, uh, you know the kind of actions on so to speak so the type of scenarios that you train for the type of things most com- from the most trivial but something that has to be dealt with all the way through to the most serious so let's start with the least yeah. serious first i I, su- I suppose probably the the sort of low-end stuff would be uh a, a one that always amuses anybody of a certain vintage will remember uh, the that, the persistent handshaker. The, the, I'm sure your brother will be able to show you the technique even now. Um, and it was almost the first thing that you did in the gym on day one, uh, learning how to disengage somebody who was uh, shaking their hands and just refusing to let go of the hand of a VIP. Yeah. Um, to this day, I don't think I've ever actually met anyone who's had to do it in anger, but it was something right. that was, you thought, this is Gucci. This is a new technique. You actually mm. ended up dislocating people's thumbs if you got it wrong um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it it was it was good that <laughs> was sort good, of not good if it's an 83 year old woman is it no no and yeah, you know, it was supposed to be discreet and a gentle you know um back off but it would be those sort of low entry things and more more enthusiasm and uh people just failing to understand it's time to to move on um yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you know you go up through uh you know people sort of sh- shouting insults and yeah, you know, maybe just trying to over over forcefully get their point across to somebody. The mm. classic would be a walkabout uh, where, where you might get someone recognise your VIP. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, this I mean, a lot of people say to me, why why don't the military uh, deal with close protection? You know, they carry guns and the rest of it. And I still like to think uh, that one of the reasons that cops were chosen was because we're used to dealing with people who are angry. Um, we're used to. Yeah. Uh, communicating with people, but also, you know, trying to get people to, you know, calm down and yeah, uh, be reasonable. Things. And those those communication skills uh, were, you know, really really important back in the day. And again, mm. if if you if you try to arrest uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry that shouted insults at your VIP, mm. <laughs> you spend more time in the custody suite than you would actually looking after your VIP. Yeah. And I, mean, I suppose um, if it's a if it's a pre-planned thing, so let's mm. say during hustings, for example, and you know yeah. that your principal is going to be going to yeah. uh, a city in the other side of the country to kind of do a walk around, then there's going to be local little bill there, isn't there? There's yeah, be, absolutely. Um, yeah. But but I suppose the riskier situation is when they're just when you're just walking around with them yeah, on, and, on, a, on a normal day yeah and you had to get inventive sometimes because you know you're, you first of all you're, you're carrying a, uh, a firearm um mm. uh, and all your other kit 
you know, you do not want to be rolling around with a member of the public over something as trivial as them calling you a VIP, a, you know, an offensive name. Yeah. Uh, on the other side, of course, is if, if this is going on in public, you've got to be seen to deal with it. You're still a police officer. You know, if you've got mm -hmm. someone effing and blinding and, you know, <laughs> even worse if it's on uh, camera and mm. we've all seen examples uh yeah you know, I, I think back to the last election campaign um with the guy um dressed as a i forgot the name of the character but wearing a basically a, a kiddie's toy full full life-size mannequin mm. um mm. Uh, um and taking his his hat off and plonking it on the uh, uh, protection officer's head in, right. in full view of the world's media as uh oh, the former um uh, leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, was going in to vote on election day. And, right. you know, I've heard people say, oh, that's really embarrassing. He should have been sacked and the rest of it. What's he supposed to do? Um, you know, um, mm. the guy in question is a good friend of mine. I thought he dealt with it. You know, <laughs> I don't think the, the uh, guy who, who uh, played the stunt on him uh, mm. was under any doubt that he was in the doghouse. But mm. it's not the time to be rolling around. It, it, no. All right, you've been embarrassed uh, in front of the world's media. Mm -hmm. Do you just take it on the chin and say, okay, mate, that's going to happen once, but it's not going to happen again? Yeah. Uh, or do you yeah. start running around on the floor with a six-foot red puppet? Yeah. So here's so here's a scenario. Your principal is in a restaurant uh, yeah. with uh, uh, their partner or a couple of work colleagues or whatever, and you you and your colleagues will be in that restaurant with them. Mm -hmm. You probably at a yeah. table that's close enough to be able to intervene if you need yeah. to. Um and and someone comes over and starts uh you know threatening them uh and it looks as if this is something that could get out of hand quite yeah. quickly um talk me through that sort of scenario yeah again i i think circumstances dictate but you're looking really to your vip for eye contact mm. to see how alarmed they are um you know they're politicians they're used to being shouted out almost as much as uniform cops mm. uh so you have to trust them and let them do their day job and actually you know they're public figures they know that mm. from time to time they're going to get uh questioned on what they do and uh sometimes not in the most appropriate of ways um so i would be very very loath to to jump in mm. but I, again i think sometimes just uh you know getting that feeling from your vip as to whether or not they're comfortable with it or not and then maybe just sort of gently usher into their peripheral vision mm. um and now you may just you know do that for your principal's benefit um they might yeah. just feel you know reassured that you're on top of it and you're dealing with it in which case mm. they're happy to engage um yeah. or you know it's getting into the person who instigated the confrontation getting in their peripheral vision so that they realize um, mm. the, the only problem with that, because there's no real coming back from that. Once they've seen yeah. you and realized yeah. who you are, yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a reality check and they'll and they'll back off. But sometimes, yeah. of course, it's uh, what's this got to do with you? Mm. Oh, now I'm being intimidated. And I, I, I've certainly had situations, strange enough, with Fathers for Justice, uh, who used to regularly ambush uh, the prime minister when uh, I was on the PM's team. And yeah, they would turn up when he's on family holiday and be camped up in his garden waiting for him to come back. And... You know, it got to the stage where actually you had to have that conversation with the PM and just say, look, mm. how do you want to play this? And, you know, he, he to his credit, said, look, I'll speak to them. Um, and that's, and yeah. of course, they're, they're videoing everything on their phones and all the rest of it. But, you know, there's a, a classic situation where if you if you played that too heavy handed, yeah, you know, it's going to look awful. Um, yeah. And that's the thing is, and that's probably why I use that that scenario, yeah. because it's sort of like it's what it's a situation that could go one of two ways, isn't it? Yeah. It could either be diffused very quickly 
and um, you politely tell them to fuck off, yeah. Yeah. Um, or um, or they could pick up a knife from the table and use yeah. it as a weapon. In yeah. which in which case you're in full on close protection mode, then, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And and again, this is where the training kicks in because what you are looking at, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, any any police officer, anybody in law enforcement knows that, you know, kitchens, uh, restaurants, in this particular case, you know you've got weapons ready uh, available to you. And one of the first things that you do as a, as a uniform officer, you know, leaving training school is do your dynamic risk assessment. So you are looking around you and thinking, okay, how's this going to pan out? Where's, where's the exit? Where, you know, where, where can I, mm. you know, block this person off and actually just positioning your body in such a mm. way and actually looking around and think, right, what if this went wrong? Um, could, could I do to sort of mm. intervene without sort of having to draw a weapon or anything like that? And of course, mm -hmm. Drawing a firearm is so rare. I mean, up until mm. the Westminster Bridge, you know, we'd only ever had one incident where someone had actually had to draw a weapon and, and fire in the UK. So it's mm. very, very rare. Yeah. Um, but you're conscious of the fact that you've got that on your hip, so you don't want to be rolling around with somebody. But again, I think you've just got to be able to treat mm. things on face value yeah. and stop thinking about yourself as a cop in that respect. I mean, a lot yeah. of people would argue that uh, that's not too difficult for anybody in protection because you're not a proper yeah. police officer anymore. Yeah. But you have still got to use those basic skills that you learn day one at training school, mm -hmm. you know, how, how to risk assess, how to protect yourself and protect your VIP, um, you know, is obviously taking it up another level. But those basic principles of treating things for what they are, not over and, you know, over egging yeah. it and then thinking, well, I've, you know, I've got to be the hero here and jump all over this person. Yeah. Yeah. No. And also, of course, a lot of our principals are, you know, <laughs> far better at these sort of things than we are. And they are prepared to have, yeah. I mean, some of them, I mean, certainly some of our uh, more robust individuals enjoyed fighting with the public verbally, not physically. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's what, that's what they were paid for. Yeah. yeah. I'm just conscious of the time. I need to go and see my uh, GP. Yeah, no problem at all. Let's, let's, let's pause here. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll come back um, for part two, because I think this okay. is fascinating and there's loads of stuff that, I think we can still talk about. Excellent. Um, it's been a I'm really interested in talking about, um, yeah, just the, just the trade craft of, of what you do and uh, and some of the other sort of interesting scenarios that have cropped up over the last few years. We can talk about those. So great, brilliant. Listen, I hope you get your I hope you get your um, embarrassing rash sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> still there after thirty years. Who knew? <laughs> brilliant. Let's do part two, mate. Cheers. You take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. 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 If you're enjoying my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it, what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book, and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website, which is www.tjfbook, all one word, tjfbook.com. Um, and I promise you, I'll reply to you. And finally, if you want to join the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you will find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks ever so much. Bye.
Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>